You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1876th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 28th of April. The editor of this edition is Katrina, the producer is Roger, and your readers are Sue and Neil. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And we start, as always, with the headlines. So the first one is anger as cruel thieves target 90-year-old and take £13,000. Sites revealed for thousands of homes and jobs in area. Woman shocked over ridiculous energy bill quote. Super slimmer Stacy. 30 shrinks. A man has spoken of his anger after his 90-year-old father, who suffers from cancer, was targeted in Berry St Edmund's shop by thieves who stole his bank card and spent £13,000. The pensioner and his wife, who live in the town, went into Boots on Cornhill last Monday and due to mobility issues, he sat in a chair at the pharmacy counter while she went shopping. At about 3.38pm, he was approached by three young women and one asked him if a £10 note which she'd picked up from the floor was his. The man's son said she was distracting him and they had a bit of an argument because he was adamant it wasn't his money. The other two picked his pockets, took his wallet and removed his debit card before placing his wallet back in his pocket. His dad only realised his card was missing the next day, but by then the thieves had spent... £13,000. His son said, I'm so upset and angry that this could even happen in the centre of Berry in Boots, where there are other people. I can't believe they could get away with this on a vulnerable person. The woman who asked about the £10 note was in her late 20s to early 30s, had blonde hair and was wearing black sunglasses, a long black coat and black boots. Another was in her late 20s, had black hair and was wearing a white face mask and light grey trousers. No, I'm sorry, light grey trainers. The third had black hair, a black face mask, a dark green or black coat and black boots. The 90-year-old, who has prostate cancer, was still in shock over the incident last Thursday and it is the second time he and his wife have been the victims of theft. It creates a lot of anxiety, added his son. I just don't want this happening to other people. They, the culprits, have probably done this before and they will probably do it again if they know they can get away with £13,000. Call Suffolk Police, quoting 37 forward slash 23042 forward slash 22. Land at an airfield is among sites earmarked for thousands of new homes and jobs over the next 18 years in a blueprint for growth set to go out to consultation. The West Suffolk local plan covers the period up to 2040 and will eventually become a legal planning document which allocates and guides where land is protected and opportunities for development such as new housing or land for employment. 
The plan also contains policies for affordable housing, new play areas and public open space, supported by infrastructure such as improvements to health and educational facilities, as well as roads. The government predicts that 15,200 more homes will be needed in West Suffolk by 2040 to meet future housing need. Some 8,600 of these already have planning permission, which leaves land for at least 6,600 homes to be identified. The Council's preferred options include land for 7,134 homes, as the authority has to over-allocate to provide a level of choice and certainty that it will meet its housing needs. The preferred options are made up of new sites as well as sites in the existing plans of the former St Edmundsbury Borough and Forest Heath District Councils that are yet to gain planning permission and which are being reassessed. On Tuesday, West Suffolk Council's Cabinet will be asked to recommend to Council on May the 17th that public consultation on the preferred options draft begins on May 26th. Full details on how people can have their say will be published when the preferred options consultation launches. Councillor David Roach, Cabinet Member for Planning at West Suffolk Council, said, With or without a plan, development happens. But without an up-to-date plan, we and our residents have less say over how we manage development, protect the countryside and other greenfield sites, secure affordable housing and make sure that health, education and road improvement keep pace with growth. Without a plan, we and our residents would have little or no voice over the development that will come forward. Alongside the public consultation, subject to Cabinet and Council approval, West Suffolk Council will also issue a further call for sites, including those for gypsies, travellers and travelling show people. In Bury, new sites earmarked include land at Ruffham Airfield and five sites in St Edmundsbury's Vision 2031 framework are featured. Among them, a planning application for Westbury is awaiting determination, as is a proposal for North Eastbury. In Brandon, the plan notes the town's proximity to Breckland's special protection area continues to, quote, limit opportunities for growth, unquote, and the council said it would work with Natural England. At Milden Hall, the planned closure of RAF Milden Hall and the Ministry of Defence's intention to bring it forward for housing has been abandoned. A site reallocated, as Planning Commission has not yet been granted, is land west of Milden Hall and south of West Stowe Road for 1,300 homes. A shop worker and mother has spoken of the enormous pressure and stress she was under after being quoted more than £4,000 to fix her energy for a year. Naomi Mayer, 49, who lives in Bury St Edmunds with her husband, Alejandro Mayer, 47, and their two boys, understood they were facing a ridiculous estimated annual rise in their gas and electricity costs of £2,831, taking their yearly fuel bill with Octopus Energy up to £4,243. Their current fixed rate with Octopus Energy ends later this month. 
A spokesman for Octopus Energy said the family have the option of doing nothing and rolling on to their standard variable tariff, Flexible Octopus. He said currently this would work out at £1,921 for an average household. Mrs Mayer said her husband, an executive chef, was trying to secure work and her part-time job in Holland and Barrett doesn't cover the bills. The family live in a two-stroke, three-bedroom, privately rented Victorian house that leaks energy. She wants to highlight how ordinary people are impacted by rising costs and for them to know they are not alone. She's also calling on the government to do more to tackle the huge energy price rises and help people. I honestly thought this is the first time in my life I have felt pressure and stress like this, said Mrs Mayer. We have never had lots of money, but we've always got by and we have always been able to get out of whatever situation we are in. With this I thought, oh my God, I don't see a way out. The family have made a claim for universal credit, which Mrs Mayer believes they will receive next month, but added it would not cover their bills. She said they have no car, no luxury holidays and are very frugal with the energy they use. We are fortunate enough to have enough savings to cover one month of bills, but beyond that we really don't have anything. Then we would really be relying on the food bank, she added. The government said it has taken action to support families worth over £22 billion in 2022-2023 to help. This includes an energy bill rebate package worth up to £350 each for around 28 million households. A Middleton Hall Slimming World superstar has lost seven and a half stone since the start of the pandemic. Stacey Lambert, who's 30, joined Slimming World in March 2020, just days before the first lockdown, after thinking, it could be me as overweight COVID patients struggled with the virus. The nurse who works at Adambrook's Hospital in Cambridge said, I was in my third year of nursing, but I gained so much weight at university. During COVID, everyone was talking about how much more it affected those who were overweight. I thought, this could be me in a hospital bed, and I knew I needed to get the weight off. During the first lockdown, Stacey weighed at home until groups restarted in 20, September 2020, by which point she had already lost five stone, then attended group for eight weeks before they were stopped once more due to restrictions, and weighed at home again until July 2021. Stacey admitted losing weight and weighing in at home was tough at times, However, her Slimming World consultant, Donna Cooper, offered useful and supportive Zoom calls and went live on Facebook. It was tough at times to stick to it, but speaking to everyone every now and then gave me motivation to keep going, she said. Donna didn't give up on anyone. She kept us going. When Donna first saw me back in group after losing five stone, she said I looked like a different person. Stacy's weight is now in the healthy zone for her six-foot height after losing seven and a half stone to reach target on December 15th, 2021. It has been a change for life. Before, I didn't realise how unfit I was. Climbing stairs at work, I didn't realise I was so out of breath. I feel fitter now and going shopping is amazing as well. I know when I try something on, it will fit added Stacy, who is now a size 10. 
Donna said, When Stacy joined my group in March 2020, she had been assigned to a COVID ward and she noticed that every patient who was ventilated had a high BMI, which she did too. That played on her mind so much, she decided she would return to Slimming World to get support to put herself in a much better place health-wise. Stacy has reduced her BMI from 37 to 22.7 and undergone a complete transformation. Animal-centric couple launch pet care franchise. A couple from Bury St Edmunds have decided to put their years of experience as nurses and a zookeeper to good use to start a Bury St Edmunds branch of the franchise, We Love Pets. Tasha Hooper, 50, and Andy Zanka, 46, went live with their pet boarding and pet sitting business, We Love Pets Bury St Edmunds, at the end of January this year, with a heavy focus on pet welfare. The couple can take in a range of family pets as well as the more exotic reptiles and birds at their home or can visit animals when their owners are away. They are also beginning to recruit licensed boarders so pets can stay with a family instead of a kennel. The couple's wide range of experience sets them aside from other pet boarding businesses out there. I'm an ex-zookeeper so I can do the specialist animals, said Tasha. We look after exotics like bearded dragons and birds. We can also do horses and goats. Not everyone can do those kind of animals. We're just lucky that we have that experience, she added. Both Tasha and Andy had careers as nurses, with Andy racking up 15 years as an emergency and trauma theatre nurse, and Tasha with 22 years working within oncology and palliative care. Aside from the medical experience, Tasha spent some time working as a horse groom and later a zookeeper at Battersea Park Children's Zoo, while Andy, originally from Italy, grew up around gun dogs as his family were hunters. All this experience boils down to an ethical approach with pets and the pair ensure that every animal's well-being is at the forefront. Andy said, Our company is welfare first and is born as an alternative to kennels, and daycare where they have groups of dogs and pack walking. Our philosophy is the other way round. The maximum we do is two or three dogs. So your pet is coming to us or our licensed boarders and your pet is looked after by a family. But for Tasha, the best part of the job is meeting all kinds of pets. Every now and then we'll meet an animal which really opens up our knowledge, experience and love for animals. So that is something really special about our job. We Love Pets Bury St Edmunds covers Bury and surrounding areas from Barrow and Lavenham across to Hawley, down to Wickenbrook, Hawley and Henny Street. West Suffolk College's Edmunds restaurant in Bury St Edmunds has won a prestigious AA College rosette after impressing judges. With dishes ranging from tapas to Thai, this is the second time they have received the rosette having originally secured the award in 2019, and they are believed to be the only college in Suffolk to have got one. The AA College Rosette Scheme was set up to promote high standards and new talent while recognising quality food and service. The scheme is run in partnership with People First, who also gave two Gold Hospitality Awards as a result of this inspection, as well as a centre of excellent status for the restaurant's food and drink services and their patisserie and confectionery skills. Claire Waterson 
operations manager at <coughs> West Suffolk College Culinary Academy, said, This is a huge achievement to win this for a second time. It's not easy to get the AA College Rosette once, and to retain it is incredibly difficult, so we are thrilled with this outcome. The inspection doesn't just look at our food, it observes our staff, our courses, how we engage with industry and what experiences we offer students. Judges were impressed with how we adapted during the height of the pandemic by putting our courses online. They also saw how we engaged with top restaurants like Maison Bleu and award-winning chefs that included Justin Sharp at Pea Porridge and Galton Blackerson. Nikos Savas, Chief Executive of West Suffolk College and Eastern Colleges Group, said, This is such fantastic news for a brilliant team at our restaurant, Edmunds. Collectively, our group, we strive for quality and excellence, and I am very proud of everyone involved for securing this well-deserved and prestigious recognition. Hundreds of people gathered in Bury St Edmunds for the town's Easter Walk of Witness, which returned after two years. The Good Friday event, organised by churches together in Bury St Edmunds and District to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ, was last held in 2019 due to the pandemic. Between 600 to 700 people gathered for a service at St Edmundsbury Cathedral, which was followed by a procession through the town to the Market Square. The walk behind a large wooden cross was accompanied by the beat of a single drum. At Market Square, about three to four hundred people enjoyed a short service of songs and dramatised readings. Heather Corbell, chair of Churches Together in Bury St Edmunds and District, which includes 50 churches in the area, said it took a lot of organising, but it did go very well. I was very pleased with the number of people and most importantly we were able to praise God and I hope he was very pleased. The really important thing is telling the Easter story, the joy of it, the kingship of Christ. We know on Sunday we celebrate the resurrection, so Good Friday isn't all about being sombre and sad. A planning application in Thetford that would see a former bank building converted into a 24-hour gambling arcade has had a large number of objections from residents. King Street's HSBC Bank building, closed since December 2020, would be transformed into a seven days a week venue and create eight jobs if agreed. But on Breckland Council's planning portal, more than 40 objections have been raised to the application, with an online petition set up for no more gambling established in Thetford, also having around 300 signatures to it. One of those commenting on the application was Rebecca Wilson, who said, There are already similar amenities in the town. Also, there is already quite a high antisocial behaviour problem in the town, which I feel will be compounded by a 24-hour business like this. This is a market town, not Las Vegas. Fellow town resident Sue MacDonald said, Though she would like to see empty retail units in the town centre occupied, there was no more capacity for another gambling establishment. She added, This sort of venue preys on the vulnerable in society, those who have little or no money to gamble. These gambling centres breed addiction and give only a few moments pleasure to those filling someone else's pockets. 
I urge you, Breckland Council, to wholeheartedly reject the application for this adult gaming centre or any others that may be applied for in the future. Please be a responsible council and help to keep the people of Thetford safe. An annual charity clay pigeon shoot and hog roast day was held at Eriswell Lodge in Brandon last week to raise money for Suffolk Accident Rescue Service and Norfolk Accident Rescue Service. Every year for over 20 years, Heather and David Pointer raise money for local small charities with a pair this year raising £4,067 to be split equally between the two services. Almost 200 people attended and 37 teams made up of five members took part in the shootout with nearly every person taking along a prize to be raffled off. David said, it's a lot of hard work but it's great fun and we get to meet up with old friends. Whatever we raise goes towards charities and we hope it does some good out there. Four new electric vehicle charging points were unveiled at Blackbourne Community Centre in Elmswell on Thursday. Owners of electric vehicles are now able to use the facilities which accept automatic card payments. County, parish and district councillors met on Thursday to herald the installation, one of the few of its kind in the area. Sarah Mansell, Mid-Suffolk District Councillor for Elmswell and Woolpit, said, It's great that Elmswell is at the forefront, paving the way for the other parishes. Let's hope they all follow suit. Suffolk County Council last year made £300,000 available to parish and town authorities that wish to install public charging points. It is hoped that such initiatives will encourage take-up of electric vehicles across the district, as many drivers do not live in areas suitable for private charging facilities. Elmswell Parish Council Chair Fred Pallett said, Last month, the top three cars sold in this country were all electric. This infrastructure's got to come for us to be able to travel around sustainably in the future. This has got to happen. Andrew Stringer, Suffolk County Councillor for Upper Gipping, said, It's good to see a village hall and community working with the County Council over a long time to install state-of-the-art accessible electric charging points which we all desperately need. If you have electric charging infrastructure in your village, it will mean people will probably come here and spend some time. If I needed to charge up and I was going to be here for an hour, I could take advantage of, take advantage of your beautiful play equipment and shop in your shops while I'm waiting for my car to charge. Elmswell Parish Council Clerk Peter Dow emphasised that the project was part of a wider green agenda for Elmswell. He said, I think it's very appropriate that Elmswell is at the forefront of this little bit of technology because we already have, under the football pitch, a ground source heat pump. On the roof of the centre we have a massive array of PV panels. This is, in a way, just the next stage. Our next plan in the far corner of the field, where we've just acquired six acres of land, is a wind generator, a turbine. Plans to tackle nearly 1,000 long-term empty homes in Baybrook and Mid-Suffolk have been outlined in a new strategy, with enforced sale or compulsory purchase orders not being ruled out. 
Data for the two authorities indicated that as of February, there were 446 homes in Baber empty for six months or more, 74 of which were in excess of two years, while 528 were recorded vacant in Mid-Suffolk for more than six months, 113 of which were two year plus. A full-time empty homes officer was recruited in November and an empty homes policy now published to to be discussed by the Council Joint Scrutiny Committee on April 25th. The plan will then be approved by Cabinet. The Council's policy report said, By writing, publicising and making full use of an empty homes policy, Babra District Council and Mid-Suffolk District Council will work towards preventing a property being left empty and to bring an empty property back into use as affordable accommodation. December housing register figures demonstrated there were 783 applications for Baber, while Mid-Suffolk had 631. The council said these empty homes could help address that demand. Among options at the council's disposal area are an empty dwelling management order, where the authority effectively takes over the management of the building to secure a new occupant, or a voluntary purchase by the council to sell on the open market. More stringent measures include an enforced purchase, where the council will force the sale of a property to recover costs accumulated through statutory notices against the property or owner, or compulsory purchase where it is unlikely to be brought back into use by the owner. Three new trustees have started working with Citizens Advice at West Suffolk. Joining the board are Annabel Meyer from Ashton's Legal, Tony Howard, who was previously employed by Citizens Advice West Suffolk, and Barry Peters, editor of the Berry Free Press for the past 22 years. Mary Porch, chair of Citizens Advice West Suffolk, said, Having the right mix of trustees is important for any charity, and I'm delighted to welcome our three new recruits. They bring with them an excellent range of skills and contacts to complement those already available through our existing board members. Citizens Advice West Suffolk covers Bury St Edmunds, Haverhill, Newmarket, Mildon Hall and Brandon. In 2021, the service received 23,149 inquiries and helped 5,860 clients. Hmm. A Suffolk Museum has been renamed to reflect its new focus on the history of great British food. The Museum of East Anglian Life in Stowmarket decided to appeal to wider audiences by relaunching with a new name to become the Food Museum. The attraction will explore the history of food, the environmental impact of food and education surrounding food production. Jenny Cousins, the museum's director, said... The museum has existed for 55 years and the change is motivated by recognition that as our audiences have changed, so should we. We are excited by the possibilities that the new direction opens up. Everybody eats and therefore everyone can relate to food in some way. We think that the potential is huge. A Bury St Edmunds beer shop is calling for people to raise a glass and raise money for the people of Ukraine. Beautiful Beers in St John Street is donating the profits on sales of Kiev-based Var-Var brews craft beers to the British Red Cross Ukraine Crisis Appeal. Var-Var Brew has been forced to close following the invasion and was desperate to sell its stock 
roughly 45,000 pints, to raise funds for food, medicine, taxes, wages and to support the country. Craft beer distributors and wholesalers Euro Booza Imports paid full price for the stock and managed to get it out of the country, pledging to donate all profits to Drinkers for Ukraine, which is raising <coughs> money for humanitarian relief. Craft beer brand Varvar Brew was founded in a former sawmill in Kiev in 2015 and, until the conflict, produced more than 750,000 litres of beer per year. A family-owned Maltings has scooped a prestigious award for its work supplying products around the world. Muntins, which has its headquarters in Stowmarket, has been crowned winner of the Global Brewing Supply Awards 2022 at the 11th RMI World Barley Malton Beer Conference held in Antwerp, Belgium. The awards highlight excellence in the supply of malt products to the brewing industry throughout the world. Muntins was selected in recognition of its outstanding programme of sustainability, commitment and action. The company started its sustainability mission in 2007. In the past few years, Muntins has invested in a biomass plant at its Bridlington site in Yorkshire and an anaerobic digester in Stowmarket, where it also this year unveiled its new biomass energy centre. It anticipates this will decarbonise its maltings by 83%. Munson's is also developing partnerships with UK farmers to grow 100% sustainable barley and working with brewers Heineken to pioneer regenerative agricultural trials with the aim of growing carbon-negative barley. Mark Tilsley, Group Managing Director, said, Everyone who works at and with Munson's should be very proud of the work we have all done. The leadership and example we have been able to show on sustainability is inspiring our entire industry. Munton celebrated its centenary in 2021. The company won the Global Supply Award previously in 2015. Its Stowmarket headquarters features both a maltings and malted ingredient plant. It also has two malting plants in Yorkshire, the main maltings at Bridlington and a new multi-million pound peating malt plant at Tithe Top. Internationally, the company also has a malted ingredients factory in Thailand and sales operation in the USA, Singapore and Holland. As one of the world's largest malt and malted ingredients companies, it provides ingredients for many of the biggest food and drink brands in the world. Munson exports its... We're now going to read some letters... Uh, my first letter says, Sir, Sunday, April 24th, is World Day for Animals in Laboratories, a time for us all to reflect on the millions of cats, dogs, mice, rabbits and other sentient beings locked up in cages in the UK and around the globe, enduring ghastly and pointless experiments, supposedly in the name of science. Many animals are so traumatised they resort to self-mutilation, ripping out their own fur or spinning in circles. Almost all of them will be killed after they have been experimented on. But continuing to rely on barbaric tests on animals makes no sense, as modern, humane and far more effective methods are available which are completely animal-free. 
Pfizer and Moderna proved that vaccine approval can and should happen far more quickly, bringing COVID-19 vaccines to market without waiting for the results of some mandatory tests on animals and instead focusing mostly on human data. This shows that using animals can slow down the development of medicines. Experiments on animals are doomed to fail because diseases that are artificially induced in animals in a laboratory are never the same as those that occur naturally in humans. Enough is enough. We must champion the funding and development of humane and human-relevant techniques such as organs on chips and the the use of advanced computer modelling. People for Ethical Treatment of Animals Research Modernisation Deal sets out a clear plan to end cruel experiments and make the transition to 21st century cruelty-free science. The UK government has the chance to lead the way and show the world what humane research really means for the benefit of humans and other animals, and it must take it. That is signed by Dr Julian Baines, who is the science policy manager at People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Now, Malcolm Searle from Bury St Edmunds writes, Report forecasts a gloomy future, even a gloomy future. By all accounts, and the latest intergovernmental panel's report on climate change is the most compelling, is that human domination on Earth is soon to be curtailed. The report is our collective explanation compiled by the brightest and best minds not influenced by vested interests of the reason for our downfall. It is indeed our swan song. Our global leaders failing to acknowledge and least of all to do anything to substantially avert this crisis have added to the tragedy by starting a war that is in the process of escalating so that potentially we shall go out not with a whimper but with a bang. Our proven propensities for being vain, vainglorious and self-delusional have brought us to our present predicament. We are special species, the chosen people, but these too are human conceits, for by our own admission all we have managed to achieve is to despoil the very life source on which we depend. It is a challenge to anyone, given the facts, to objectively come to an alternative conclusion. This comes from Martin Webb in various endeavours. Just when you think that the amorality of the present government cannot get worse, it does. Boris Johnson is, and I believe I am correct in saying this, the first Prime Minister in over 200 years to be found guilty of a crime while in office. Yet there is no prospect of his resigning. How can such a man whose attitude to truth and honour is so cavalier, command any respect. However, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good, and the war in Ukraine has been good for him, although it has been anything but that for the Ukrainians. Mr Johnson can now play the statesman on the world stage and hope that this leads us to forget about Partygate. I have not forgotten and there are many, many like me. By the by, being defended by a man like MP Michael Fabricant, an unfortunate name, who appears to get his knowledge of the NHS and state schools from carry-on nurse and St Trinian's, does nothing to help. 
Barry Peters, the editor of the Berry Free Press, writes, Catch this evil trio and make them pay. One story made my blood boil this week, he writes. The case of the 90-year-old cancer sufferer who was duped by a trio of women and fleeced for his bank card left me reeling. The days of our elders being seen as off-limits to any wrongdoing seemed totally foreign to this trio, who went on to leech £13,000 from the man's bank account. The story broke at the same time as a smiling picture of Suffolk Chief Constable Steve Jupp and Police and Crime Commissioner Tim Parsmore dropped into my inbox. They are planning an online discussion on Monday evening and are inviting anyone to join them to ask questions via a live web chat session. So here's one question from me which might wipe the smiles off their faces. What can we tell this 90-year-old cancer sufferer to give him back his confidence and restore his faith in humanity? How do we rebuild his trust? I find it hard to believe that a town with CCTV seemingly on every lamppost cannot track a distinctly evil trio when the need arises. Now this comes from R. King in Long Melford. The price of coal has increased massively, but we still need cement and steel for all the construction industry, plus the heritage sector. These industries say that they still need coal, so what do we do, and where do we get it from? We could a. import it from countries such as Russia or Colombia, with all the fuel miles that entails, b. import the steel from Germany, which still uses massive amounts of coal, we can then pretend we're going green, or c. dig it up in the UK with very low fuel miles. We, of course, decide to import it, despite sitting on hundreds of years' supply of the stuff. To make matters worse, to get at Russia, we import more from places like Colombia. I suggest people have a look at the report on human rights in Colombia. But, of course, the media is not there filming, so it's very much out of sight, out of mind. Then again, we could, buy, we could look to buy more oil from Saudi Arabia a country which executed 81 people in a single day and is rated as one of the worst for human rights. So when people are complaining about costs and fuel prices, who should we really blame? Indeed. Now, the Reverend Richard Stainer from Bradfield St George writes, How good to read Bishop Martin's reminder that love will always have the last word. The very free press, April the 15th. We need to be reminded of that following the government's announcement that asylum seekers to the UK are likely to find themselves deported 4,500 miles to Rwanda. Not much love or compassion shown there. Our Archbishop spoke on this topic on Easter Day and then Jacob Rees-Mogg condescendingly suggested that Justin Welby had not understood the policy. I think our Archbishop and all of us are in the Church have not found it difficult to understand. Thank you, Jacob. You want to break the business model of the people smugglers. I'm sure all of us would agree with you that this is absolutely the right thing to do, but not by punishing the victims of those smugglers. That is what this policy will do. People who have suffered war, torture and seen things that thankfully most of us will not in our lives are not to be welcomed here, but dumped in Rwanda. I know Rwanda a little. It is a beautiful country which is developing economically at a fast pace. 
However, it is still very poor and President Kagame does not broach any opposition. Our own government back in January criticised his regime and its use of torture. That is where they now want to send those fleeing oppression. Could I suggest to Mr Rees-Mogg that a cheaper and more compassionate way of stopping the people smugglers is to offer passage on our ferries to the UK to all those seeking asylum? Remember, there is no such thing as an illegal asylum seeker. On arrival, they could be accommodated in hotels while their applications are processed. These that are granted asylum can then become British citizens and those that don't can be legitimately deported. At the moment, about <coughs> 60% of asylum seekers are given the right to stay. At a time of labour shortage in our NHS, on our farms and elsewhere, we should be grateful for anybody who can contribute economically to our country. As Bishop Martin pointed out, people across Europe, including here in Suffolk, have reached out with love to those fleeing from Ukraine and indeed other war zones. Love is indeed returning but it would be good to see signs of it in our government's treatment of asylum seekers. I just wonder if Mr Rees-Mogg has fully understood what an asylum seeker is. Either way, I would prefer love to have the last word rather than him. Now this is a slight change on a straight letter. It's called Chatterbox. Welcome to Chatterbox, a weekly sideways look at what's got you taking to the keyboard on social media this week. News that West Suffolk Council has completed a land deal at Zone 3 of the Suffolk Business Park, which could pave the way for new businesses to occupy units and boost jobs, had people tapping away this week. The 6.9 acres purchase is part of a £12.1 million investment by the authority and partners in new units for businesses in the advanced manufacturing and engineering sector. But Carl Goldsmith was not impressed with the deal. He said, what a waste of money. For that much money, you could build more council houses, not wasting it on units. I know I keep saying we don't need any more houses, but we do need more council houses. Also, with that money, you can cut down the price of parking and also save all small businesses. Another person not thinking this way was something to be proud of was Dexter Bowles. He said, dot, 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 and that some of the business rates from the Enterprise Zone can be reinvested here locally, so local taxes pay for this development. Yet the bulk of the rates go to SCC coffers, Suffolk County Council, to no doubt be spent primarily on Ipswich, as nowhere else exists in Suffolk County Council's tiny mines. Vitor Belfort simply said, jobs for who? Another story that had people going for the keyboards was the West Suffolk local plan. Sites for thousands of new homes and jobs across West Suffolk over the next 18 years have been identified in the blueprint for growth with a consultation set to begin next month. Shirley Mundy said, What about improved roads, more dentists, doctors, schools, libraries, nurseries and all the other services that people require? When these are available, then build. Until that time, the plan is crazy. Leanne Sischek agreed about improving roads by saying, 
I think the roads need sorting out before any more houses are built. It's a place I avoid now due to sitting in gridlock everywhere. Kevin Segel questioned what the plan would do for the next generation of young homeowners in the area. He said, where are all these people coming from to go into these houses? Certainly not many young locals as they cannot afford them. And finally, Rob McClay, going down the same line, said, Surely the issue isn't more homes, but better avail affordability. And Graham Day from Stowmarket writes about a perfect backdrop for the celebrations coming up. He says, I am delighted that the much-postponed millennium celebrations for the founding of the Abbey of Bury St Edmunds are at last going ahead. A series of events including pilgrimages, a gathering of Benedictine monks and nuns and a community picnic are among those planned. It is strange to think that the Abbey was founded during the reign of King Canute when the ruins are surrounded by the most wonderful floral displays in the Abbey Gardens. The gardens were a riot of spring colours recently on a warm morning visit, busy but also tranquil in some areas, especially the replanted John Appleby Rose Garden. Add into the mix with the Abbey and the wonderful cathedral, then West Suffolk and Bury St Edmunds has the capacity to attract more visitors, especially with the millennium celebrations. An ancient icon of which we can be justly proud, 1,000 years gone in a flash. A few days later, on a fine morning and after a visit to Ipswich Town Centre, the chance was taken to visit a cafe and garden centre overlooking the Strand at Wearsted. Sitting outside in the spring sunshine, we suddenly realised that framed within the trellises of the outside seating area was a superb view of the stunning sweeping structure of the Orwell Bridge. The long graceful lines of that of what was when built the longest pre-stressed concrete bridge in the UK gleamed radiant white in the strong sunshine. To reduce traffic congestion in Ipswich, either a bridge or tunnel was proposed. The bridge won the day. Tied in with the building of a new southern bypass, construction began in the late 1970s under the supervision, would you believe it, of engineer Mr Sidney Telford. It opened to traffic on the 17th of December 1982, 40 years gone in a flash. Claude Monet once said, My garden is my most beautiful masterpiece. The stunning Abbey Gardens provide the perfect backdrop for the Abbey ruins and inspiration for the Millennium Celebrations. The Orwell Bridge is now also a beautiful and inspiring masterpiece. Two Suffolk icons which help define our beautiful county. Now I have the first of two features. And the first one is written by Terry O'Donoghue. Basil Oliver, the man who gave the pillar of salt to the town. Standing proudly on Angel Hill, the affectionately named pillar of salt has been a meeting point for countless thousands of locals and visitors to the town since 1935. Grade 2 listed, reputed to be the first internally illuminated Roan sign designed and erected in the country, its architect was the quiet, unassuming Basil Oliver. Much has been written locally about the architects and builders of the cathedral and the now-ruined Benedictine Abbey, but in the first three, de- three decades of the 20th century, no architect had a greater and lasting impact on the appearance of the town than our own Suffolk-born Basil Oliver. Basil, 
the son of a Sudbury brewer, was born in 1882 and educated at King Edward VI Grammar School in the town and following a spell at Liverpool University, completed his professional education at the Central School of Arts and Crafts in London. Whilst architecture was his primary profession, he was a talented artist, having ten pictures exhibited at the Royal Academy between 1890 and 1948. Basil's artistic skills bridged both his love of all things arts and crafts and the emerging Art Deco movement which followed the Great War. This is no more evident than in the former Green King, Rose and Crown Public House on Newmarket Road in Cambridge. The exterior is a classic 1928 Art Deco design, but many of its internal fittings were crafted by the Art Workers Guild, of which he was master at the time. During this period, Basil had been retained by Green King to build or refit its stock of tied public houses. Sadly, most of the records from Green King and his work for them has been lost, but it is accepted that he was most likely involved in fitting out several public houses in Bury. Basil Oliver's work can be seen in other parts of the eastern region, including Castlings Hall, Groton, and the acclaimed War Memorial in Great Dunmo. However, it is in Bury that we can see a concentration of his skill, all visible from his Pillar of Salt. The old borough offices, described by Pevsner as neo-Georgian, tactful and completely uneventful, and also his 1935 sympathetic remodelling of the entrance hall and inner reception area of the Athenaeum. Basil was a prolific writer on his chosen profession, including, naturally, the Renaissance of the English Public House in 1947. While much is known about his public persona, his private life was unremarkable. Having never married, he shared a house with his sister, Violet Oliver, for most of his adult life and was still working up until his death in May 1948 in Sudbury at the age of 65. When the Pillar of Salt was first erected, it did not meet with universal approval by the residents of the town, but today we could not envisage Angel Hill being stripped of this unique piece of street architecture. And now a feature written by Barry St Edmunds man John Nice, who took to the skies to pay tribute to his late granddad. Pat on the back for granddad. When one of the most important people in your life passes, it is unbearable. You think, if only I could have one more moment with them, to tell them how amazing they were. To not just look them in the eyes, but to pat them on the back and say, thank you. Sadly, life does not afford us such a pleasure. At least I never thought it did, until now. I'll explain. My grandfather, Cyril Cutting, was a berry man through and through. He was the best of men, a true gent. He looked a bit like Clark Gable and acted like David Niven. He single-handedly shone a light on our family, making us better than we were. Truth is, he still does. He sadly passed in 2004 and left an irreplaceable void. Cyril was an RAF man. He learnt to fly on an airfield near Newmarket Road in Bury. He signed up to do his duty for the King pretty much before Chamberlain had finished his declared war speech on the radio. Stationed mainly in North Africa, flying Bristol 
bow fighters. Cyril got shot down twice, broke his back, made his way back to base behind enemy lines and somehow got through it. He saw many come and go, but would always speak positively of his time in the Air Force. He had a great faith in something that he couldn't quite comprehend that helped him come home. The motto of his squadron, 272, was on, on, and with that, his faith and the RAF motto, through adversity to the stars, I think he felt he had a guiding light on his shoulder, and he just loved to fly. A grace that is said before food within the Air Force encapsulates his love of flying. To share the eagle's view, the right to soar as eagles do, the right to call the clouds his home. The clouds were indeed his home during those days. And, thanks to my sister's partner, Mark, I was given my own opportunity to step-ladder my way towards the clouds by flying in a tiger moth at Duxford, a plane that Cyril had originally learnt to fly in. My sister Liz was originally set to do this, but she passed the baton to me. She said that she was scared of flying, but I think she was just being kind. Mark had purchased the flight so that Liz could be so close to Cyril one last time. But as it transpired, it would be me who would get to say goodbye to him. I was watched by a healthy group of 13 family and friends and represented my granddad as best I could. There was no way I could live up to the great man. And, unbeknownst to me, they filmed the whole flight, so my occasional nervy ramblings aren't that befitting of the RAF. But in true granddad spirit, I gave it a bloody good go, just as he would have wanted flight was a 30-minute jaunt on a clear day over the Cambridgeshire countryside, and I did have a moment or two with my granddad. Although my sister Liz wasn't in the plane, she was there in spirit, as were the rest of the family, including my brother Jimmy and mum Sally. And when my pilot Bob and I clipped the clouds with the wings of that tiger moth, amidst what was described as a steep turn, Liz and I didn't get to look Cyril in the eye, but we did get to pat him on the back one last time and thank him for being the best. And my second feature is from Martin Taylor. Where is Edmund? The last official sighting of St Edmund's body, still uncorrupted, was back in 1198 by Abbot Samson and a few trusted monks after a disastrous fire. Since then, several theories have been put forward as to what happened to the first patron saint of England. One such outlandish belief was that the monks themselves, at separate times, replaced the blessed cadaver with that of another corpse, in effect a substitution. However, to carry this out, a tight veil of secrecy would have had to be kept by those involved, hardly likely. Even if this was remotely true, the fact still remains that, at the dissolution, Henry's two commissioners... John App Rice and John Lee did not find a body in the shrine, substitute or not. Another suggestion is that Prince Louis, Dauphin of France, kidnapped Edmund's body in 1217 whilst rampaging through East Anglia during the baronial wars. Ending up in Toulouse in France, the alleged bones there have since been repudiated. Could Edmund have been temporarily removed at some time during troubled times for safekeeping, in particular during the riots of 1327 and 1381? Though the rioters were very anti-abbey, there is no record of the shrine being compromised, 
After all, Edmund still commanded a great deal of respect. Messing about with such a powerful figure could have had disastrous consequences for those involved. The latest theory is that Edmund was snaffled away by monks prior to the arrival of the commissioners. The monks knew what had been happening to other religious houses and it was hardly likely they would have not known of the impending commissioner's visit. But where to put Edmund? It had to be somewhere away from the abbey church but still in holy, consecrated ground. The monk's cemetery, just east of the shrine, an obvious choice. This is the latest well-thought-out hypothesis by eminent historian Francis Young with evidence that Edmund was possibly buried here in an iron-bound chest. Tennis courts were later built partly over this cemetery, mid-20th century. The courts themselves were removed in early 2020 and blinded with topsoil. However, the Covid pandemic put a stop to any investigation via a geophysical survey, and in 2021, a 36-metre diameter wildflower labyrinth was planted. Investigations are now on hold. Hmm, interesting. And now for my last feature, uh, written by David Irvin. He's writing about the completion of symbolic roundabout sculpture to be carried out this year. 78 years ago, on Christmas Eve 1944, a B-17 Flying Fortress nicknamed Treble 4 left RF Bury St Edmund Suffolk with Brigadier General Frederick Castle at the controls, having been chosen to lead a mission that involved over 2,000 heavy bombers focused on stopping the German offensive in the Ardennes. General Castle's Flying Fortress developed engine problems over Belgium and had to drop out of formation and with no fighter escort, the plane was immediately singled out by enemy fighters. With fires on board and two of the four engines burning, Castle refused to jettison his bombs to lighten the load of his severely damaged B-17 due to Allied friendly troops below. He ordered all his aircrew to immediately bail out, leaving only himself and one other pilot remaining to assist. Their treble four B-17G bomber exploded before crashing into ground close to American troops, killing Castle and the other pilot. Five of the crew of eight survived and General Castle was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honour. Now, as we approach the 80th anniversary, 1942-2022, of RAF Bury St Edmunds, a.k.a. Ruffham Airfield, the operating base of 94th Bombardment Group, Berry in Bloom is completing a symbolic sculpture to commemorate the gallant American servicemen flying and servicing the B-17 Flying Fortress out of RAF Berry St Edmunds by completing a commemorative sculpture standing on a white high-point star against a blue background. Originally unveiled in 2016, the symbolic four-metre-high Flight of Peace sculpture sits on a two-metre-high brick plinth and shows a dove carrying an olive branch emerging from the unfurled tail fin of a B-17 flying fortress with a square A insignia. It was installed on a roundabout close to the Ruffham airfield at the junction of Mount Road and Lady Miriam Way and remained incomplete as the Berry and Bloom charity ran short of funds.
However, the organization now intends to complete the planned landscape surround, showing the United States white five-point star surrounded by a blue background, and hope to re-unveil the refurbished memorial in June 2022, about the time of the Queen's Platinum celebrations. David Irvin, coordinator of Berry and Bloom, said, We had the funds to complete the massive five-point star in white marble. However, we need to raise the £10,000 or $13,000 for the final stage of 245 square metre blue background. It's a big project for us and we hope that families of USAF servicemen can contribute to this lovely memorial as part of the 80th anniversary of RAF Bury St Edmunds. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Katrina, Roger, Neil and Sue, it's goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio. Thank you.